Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, it was my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, friend of the show, my very good friend, Joe Morgan, about teaching online, and I promise it is a good one. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by School Exams. Now, School Exams, the school's product delivered by schoolonline.co.uk, offers a unique learning and revision platform providing top quality bite-sized video tutorials delivered by leading examiners in the critical maths and English skills your students need to master at GCSE and Key Stage 2 level. Now, focusing specifically on past paper questions, each video tutorial walks through the method and marks available for individual questions. I've had the chance to watch a few of these videos, the GCSE ones in particular, and they are absolutely superb. You get a close-up of a super, super, super knowledgeable teacher and former examiner working through the questions, the explanations are really easy to follow, and the emphasis on exam technique and what really gets the marks makes these videos stand out from the crowd. They are ideal for supporting your students in preparing for their GCSE maths in-school assessments this year and helping them catch up on lost learning and focus on individual problem areas. Another really nice touch is the teacher tools, which allow you to set focus groups within your class and assign students personalised revision homework covering exactly what they need help with. Invaluably, in the current environment, school exams can be used by your students on any device, including their mobile phones. So, please check out schoolexams.co.uk to find out more. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out more about the sponsor packages available. But back to today's episode with Joe Morgan. Now, as we all know, or at least should do by now, Joe is an absolute legend of the maths teaching community. Her website, resourceaholic.com, is the go-to site for so many teachers to find hand-picked, curated, top-quality resources, and her Maths Gem series of posts are a must-read for the latest mathematical gold out there. She's also a regular speaker at the likes of MathsConf, where her sessions are always top draw. But... As we all know, Jo is undoubtedly best known for her frequent appearances on this very podcast as my co-host for several Conference Takeaway episodes, as well as a few standalone episodes. Indeed, you know what, it really is about time she admits this. It's probably her proudest life achievement. 
Now, Joe recently published a blog post about online teaching, full as ever of lovely resources. But this surprised me somewhat because when Joe was back on the show as part of my Teaching From Home series last year, she'd ruled out doing any online teaching and instead was setting Hegarty Maths videos for her students. So I had to get her back on the show to find out what's changed and why. And I tell you what, I'm so glad I did because it turned into a bit of a classic. So in a wide-ranging conversation, Joe and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. Firstly, what does Joe's working week look like these days? How does she balance working at home versus her senior leadership responsibilities for going into school? And then how is she finding juggling teaching versus looking versus sorry, looking after her two young girls? Then, and this is my favorite bit of the of the whole conversation, Joe talks us through in detail one of her online lessons. And I keep interrupting with various questions about what she's doing, what students are doing, assessment and so on. And honestly, I learned so much from that. Then we turn our attention to Joe's favorite resources for online teaching. And then what her what are some of her top tips for making teaching online effective? What challenges does Joe still face? And finally, is there anything she's learned from this experience that she'll bring back into the classroom? Joe is a very good friend and an excellent podcast guest. I know you'll get so much out of this conversation. Now, just before we crack on, I wanted to remind you that my online course with Joe Morgan, entitled Marvelous Maths 2 Misconceptions, Methods and Mastery, is available for purchase. I use data from 20 million uh, answers and student explanations from diagnosticquestions.com, my website, to find the most pertinent, surprising and interesting misconceptions students hold. And then Joe suggests ways we can tackle them head on through methods, pedagogy and some incredible free resources. As well as doing this for the topics of decimals, coordinates and Pythagoras, we suggest a general approach to lesson planning that could be applied to all topics. There's over 100 videos and 100 resources and you can just dip into it as and when you need. I'm so proud of the course and I think it should be the ideal C CPD opportunity to take individually or better still work through as a department over time. Full details are in the show notes or at craig.barton.podia.com. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Joe Morgan. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Right, Joe Morgan, welcome back once again to the podcast. I tell you, our listeners getting sick of you being on this show, do you reckon? <laughs> what <would> you... <laughs> Quite possibly. I, I think, well, you know, I do hold the record, don't I? So. You do. Oh, but, but by far and away. But you're my go-to person because, again, you've, you, well, you, you're kind of wrestling with, with a lot of the experiences that, that many of the listeners are. And you always kind of describe them so eloquently. And you're always so open and honest. So I make no apologies for getting you back on the show. But what I am going to get you to do first is just the usual bit of a catch-up. So I reckon you were back on last time in October when we were focusing on the challenges of teaching key stage three mathematics. So we're recording this towards the end of January. So what's that, three months maybe, three, four months? Yeah. What, 
what have you been up to uh, since then in, in those in those last couple of months? So I think when we did that recording, it was just before we launched Marvelous Nest 2, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. good plug. Good plug early on, I like it, yeah. <laughs> that, we made, made that um, wonderful online course and that um, lots of people have done it and we've had some great feedback. And, and the thing is, because it's online, obviously it's still available. So that's nice to to know that people at any time that they want to do some some high quality CPD, that's that's there for them. Um, so that was good. That was just after that podcast. Um, and another thing that we did that I worked on with you and Anne Watson was our dose of Don stuff. Um, so this is where we took some uh, some Don Stewart resources, and, and Anne Watson has done this amazing job of of sort of pulling together some really interesting analysis of them. And we've started, um, and we've started sharing that sort of through Anne's website and through my blog. So that's something that me and you and, and Anne Watson had a lot of good chats about, and it's been really interesting. So that was good. Um, and then um, when was that? So that was around uh, November time. And yes. then um, then I got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was an unfortunate end to my term. Um, literally, you, you reckon you got this in school, right? Well, um, I don't know. We didn't have much of it going around my school compared to some of the schools in my area because obviously well, we know that London was a particularly bad uh, area at the time. So around December time, London was in a right state um, with lots of schools where it was rife. And um, we had some schools around in my area which where there were absolutely like hundreds of cases. And actually in my school, we didn't have many because... We have very wide corridors because we're a new building. We have really good ventilation. Uh, we only have three year groups in the building because we're a new school. So for lots of reasons, we didn't have a huge amount, but we had a few cases, including one boy who I was in my maths class. So maybe I caught it off him. Um, but actually, I wonder whether I caught it off um, maybe my daughters because not that we don't know if they had COVID. We never didn't get tested or anything. They both had a really horrible cold in the week that I got ill. Or the, or the week before I got ill and it may be that I caught it from them because that's the only possibility it's either I got it from school or I caught it from them because I didn't go anywhere else <laughs> so it had yeah. to be one. But, um yeah unfortunately it was literally yeah, in the last week of term I started feeling a bit funny I knew something was up and then the day after you know how teachers always get sick in the holidays because of the, yes. the, the adrenaline stops doesn't it and suddenly all the symptoms come out and um first day of the holidays suddenly I was aching and had a fever and I could tell that I was, I thought it was bound to be COVID. Um, and my husband was working really late that night. He was at the hospital till about 10. And I was calling him up and, and I was saying, as soon as you get home, we need to do one of these lateral flow tests. Because we had a box mm. of them at home because he works in the hospital. He's got a box that he can test himself with. So when he got home, we did the lateral flow test and it said negative. And the thing is, these things say negative to bloody everyone. You know, you, yeah. can, have, you can have really serious COVID and it says negative because the tests are useless. <laughs> um, so then the next day we drove half an hour and I was really in a bad way in the car. Like I could, I, I was had really, really uh, had a high temperature and really aching. And we drove to one of these drive through centres and that one came back positive. So clearly the lateral flow test yes. was nonsense. And then yeah, my poor husband caught it from me a couple of days later. So he was then off work. He was meant to be working throughout the whole Christmas period, but he then had to have a couple of weeks off. Um, and we were both in a right mess. We were, we were just, we were just couldn't get off the sofa really for the whole, uh, the whole couple of weeks. And um, we both lost our smell and taste, which was really miserable for Christmas. Um, so yeah, but you know, I, I say we're in a bad way. I just mean we were, we were unwell with fevers, which is horrible, and bad coughs and cold symptoms. But you know, neither, neither of us got so bad that there was any risk of being hospitalised. So we were very lucky in a way. 
that um, it didn't get worse. And, and also, did you did you see my little story about my mother-in-law? I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. Tell us this one. This is this is lovely, lovely. It's right? amazing. It's like a real good news story. So, my, I live in the same house as my in-laws um, because they live in the annex. So, we live in the main house, and then we built a, a two-story annex on the side, and they live in that. Um, and so it's impossible to avoid them. So when I had COVID, there were times where I was lying on the sofa and my mother-in-law would just appear and say, oh, can I get you a drink? And I'd be like, go away, you're not meant to be close to me. But um, so obviously we were worried. I mean, they're not that old, they're, they're 65, but we were worried they'd catch it from us. And then, um, um, but they've both been on the vaccine trial. So I can't remember, I don't know when it was, but at some point last year, they both volunteered to have the vaccine when it was in the development stages, but they didn't know if they'd had the vaccine or a placebo. Um, and then um, neither of them caught it from us. So we thought, well, maybe they have had the vaccine. But then actually my mother-in-law, she works in the hospital. So she um, got offered last week to make an appointment for the vaccine. So she booked the appointment and they said, right, we're going to unblind you from the trial. So they're going to tell her whether she's already had the vaccine. And it turns out she has. So this is now just really lovely because we're thinking by being on that trial, it's, it's literally stopped her from catching it from us when she was in yeah. the same house as us. So could have saved her life. Um, and we don't know about my father-in-law yet because he's not yet been unblinded. But I think we're just assuming he has also had the vaccine on the trial. So both of them have escaped from catching COVID from us over Christmas because they had the vaccine. So that's wow. that's really lovely. It's a positive vaccine story, which suggests the vaccine really does work, but also so nice for our family that, you know, in a situation where they could have got really unwell and it was really hard to avoid them, they, um, they're fine. So that's great. Nice. And f- final COVID question. Are you feeling better now, Jose? Is everything back to normal? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I... Um, I, I, if I go on a walk in the cold, I'm, I'm coughing an awful lot afterwards, and I, I don't, I don't normally get that. So I think the cough, the persistent cough, is is uh, is hard to shift, but um, it's definitely improving. My sense of taste and smell is, I reckon, 99% back to normal now. Something still tastes a bit wrong. That was it's surprisingly upsetting when you can't yes. taste your favourite foods, especially over the because it was my 40th on the 6th of January, and you know you just sort of think you can't. I couldn't go out for dinner. I couldn't do anything to celebrate my birthday. The one thing I wanted was a nice uh, meal at home with my husband and a glass of wine and it just tasted all wrong and horrible yes. and it's, it's so upsetting when that's your one luxury and you can't even have that um so yeah I think I'm pretty much better now and obviously I now don't have to have the lateral flow test at school so when I'm in school I don't have to all my colleagues are having to have the test I don't have to for three months because I've had COVID so it's got me out of that um, but there are there are some small advantages to having had it um, but it's a bit upsetting that I suppose I'm, I'm not going to be immune forever now. You know, everyone says that there is a possibility yes. you can get it again, which is quite annoying. Because I don't ever want that again. It really was quite unpleasant. Flipping heck. Well, yeah, like, thankfully you're okay. Husband's okay and yet your family's okay. Flipping heck. Right, Joe. Well, um, the folks we're going to be talking on about today is is kind of teaching online and the current situation that many, many, many teachers around the world find themselves in. So first off, what's your week like? Are you still having to go into school um, any days? And how, how's that all working? Yeah, it's the same as I was in the summer term where I go in on Fridays, um, which is a day that I can get my mother-in-law to look, because she still works, my mother-in-law, but she is home on Fridays. So I get her to homeschool my daughters on Fridays and I go off and do the day school. So that means I'm the member of the leadership team who's sort of overseeing the um, the key worker school and, and, you know, the vulnerable kids who are in. Um, and we have a fair few. We have, um, I reckon, about 80 
um, that are in um, every day. So, so that's my Fridays. That's the day I get up and go to work. And then four days a week, I'm home and I'm obviously um, looking after my own children and also teaching online. So I'm sort of juggling those things. And when you're in school on the Friday, are you are you teaching kind of normal classroom lessons or are you doing this kind of combo where you're being recorded and kind of syncing it online? How's that all working when, uh, when you're in on a Friday? No, when I'm in on a Friday, uh, well, the thing is, our key worker kids in school, they just do this virtual school that people are doing at home. And, and I don't know if it's the best experience for them, but basically our, our, our key worker kids come into school and they sit in front of a computer and they do the lessons that are being broadcast to them, right. everyone at home. So they get exactly the same experience as everyone at home. Um, so when I'm, so that means that for anyone that's in our day school, they're literally just sitting in a computer room supervising the students. And because I'm leadership, I'm just sort of going between the, the, the computer rooms, making sure everything's running well. So I'm not having, actually, my Fridays are relatively calm because that's the day that I don't, I'm not timetable to teach any maths lessons. So Fridays, I'm literally just making sure everything's running smoothly in school. And that basically just means lots of students kind of looking at screens and doing what they're meant to be doing. Um, but yeah, and then obviously supervising break and lunch and all that. But yeah, I, that's the day. Friday's the day where we have no maths timetabled at all because we have a part-time maths teacher in our department who doesn't work Fridays. So, so we don't teach maths on Fridays. I see. Got it. Got it. And before we dive into um, tips for teaching online and your experiences, just another practical question, Joe. I know when you were on during the Teaching From Home series of podcasts, you and a lot of the guests, but you in particular were speaking about the the challenges of juggling your job working from home with also obviously um, homeschooling your your two young daughters. Um, how are you finding that? Is it Has there been any change in the kind of challenge level from kind of previous school closures to now with that? Is it, is it still a bit of a nightmare trying to juggle both or um, how, how are you coping? Yeah, I mean, really, I should have put my girls into their school. You know, obviously, I, they would have, they both their parents are key workers. It would have been, been very easy for me to put them in. Um, but I decided to keep them at home. And um, I, I still think it's, for me, that that's fine. I can, I can, I'm good at multitasking and I am coping, but I, I think um, it's harder this time because they're being set an awful lot more work. Um, you know, they, they, they really weren't set very much in the first lockdown and it was all um, kind of, you know, like go on, go onto this website and sort of just play around on it for an hour or something. But now they're being set videos they have to watch and tasks they have to do. Um, one uses Teams, one uses Google Classroom. So it took me the first week I'll try to get my head around the different platforms and how to use them. We're into quite a good routine now, but it, um, I'm doing more live lessons this time. So very often I'm saying to them, right, I'm going upstairs for an hour. You can't disturb me. I'll be teaching. But I'm lucky. My, my girls are really good at just getting on with it, really well behaved. And so I'm very lucky there. There's things that I've learned from the first lockdown. So, for example, we start our day really early. They start their online learning at half seven in the morning wow yeah the thing is it's, that sounds early but they normally get up at seven for school anyway like, I, I get up nice and I'm, I'm still getting up almost as early as I do for normal school um so I'm all set by seven and then they um they normally get up at seven so it's no no earlier for them so it's not like I'm waking my poor children up at the crack of dawn so I get them up and then really we only need half an hour for them to get dressed and have breakfast and then we start and the good thing about that is Quite often, so remember, at their age, they only need to do three or four hours of school. So actually, they're finished before lunch every day. And we've done a good amount of schooling for them. And I feel like we've ticked all the boxes. We've done all their tasks and probably a bit more. And they're done by lunchtime. And even though after lunch I do do a few bits with them, really it takes the pressure off because all my afternoons Mm. are free. So the only time the pressure's really on for me is if I have, say, two live lessons in the morning 
um, when I'm trying to school them at the same time. But yeah, it just mean that by just just by starting early, that was my big fix. The big thing that I changed um, after a couple of days of sort of stress in, in the first week of January was I said, right, we're going to get started really early. And then it just, it just, then you just, you feel like you've got a lot less pressure for the whole day because they're really, you know, by their sort of ten thirty break when I let them go off and have a snack, they're pretty much finished. So yeah, that's my tip. If anyone's trying to, if anyone's struggling with uh, sort of managing things, then then just have a think about whether sort of getting started sooner might be might be a, a good way to start the day. It just takes the pressure off. And, and just two quick questions on that. Firstly, just, just remind us of the ages of your two daughters. Um, I have a six-year-old and, I can't remember, six-year-old and a nine-year-old. So I've got a year two and a year four. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. The, the the teachers are doing things very differently this time. But I, what I should say is that neither of them do live lessons, which is absolutely brilliant. If they both had to attend live lessons all day, I wouldn't be able to do this. I'd have to have sent them into school. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I know there's a lot of pressure on, um, there are some primaries that are now doing live lessons all day that that just absolutely would not work for my setup, you know, because I, I, even when it's just a, if, it, if my daughter's meant to do a call at 10 every morning where she can see her teacher and have a chat with her classmates, but it's optional. And so she can only do that if I'm not teaching at the time. So, you know, if she was in live lessons all day, it just, it just wouldn't be possible. I would have had to send them in. So yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that there's, their schools are doing things that actually work quite well for me. That's great. Uh, my, my second question is, what do you do in the afternoon? Is that where Disney Plus gets? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I try not to let them do that all day, although, you know, I, they're, they're such good girls and they, they do work very hard in the morning. So I think I, I, it would be cruel of me to say that they can't do what they want in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, they're doing, uh, they, they're, they're watching stuff or they're playing uh, games or they're doing some craft. You know, they're both very different. Like the older one is, uh, is increasingly becoming like a teenager, even though she's only nine and she likes to sit and play games on her Chromebook whereas the younger one likes to sit and play with cardboard boxes. So, yeah, um, I, I do. I think it's in the afternoon. That's when I normally have a lot of online meetings. So um, I'm just very lucky. I know most people's kids kind of, they, I get told that a lot of children just don't get on with things independently as well as my two do. So I know I'm very lucky. I don't have to hassle them to do their work. I can leave them on their own and they will self-manage. So, um so yeah, I think I, I'm just quite lucky that they are um, they are they're doing all the right things to help me out in this situation. And and one more bonus question on this, and, and feel free not to answer this, but I wonder have you noticed? Uh, I, I've spoken to uh, quite a few of my friends who've got kids uh, similar ages as as yours, Joe. And obviously, we, we, Isaac, our little boy, he's only two, so it's it, it, he hasn't noticed as much of a change or anything. But are, are you are your two daughters are, are they kind of suffering in, in in any way not being in school, not mixing with their friends and stuff? Do you, do you have you noticed any difference? Have they gone quieter or anything, or do, do they seem to be coping? pretty well i think my two are okay i think it's good they got each other i think um, it would be difficult if they didn't have a sibling who they got on with you know that so that really helps um i think my two are also quite lucky that like i said earlier my in-laws live in the annex so that means they see their grandparents yeah, whenever they want and that really helps because they're not isolated from a family like a lot of children are um so and I think they like being at home with me because obviously as a teacher normally they see me for sort of half an hour before they go to bed and like you know so so they really like the quality time well I say quality time the uh, the the time they're spending with me um but yeah they do um they, they miss school I think it's other things as well like for me it breaks my heart that they're not doing their swimming lessons and all that sort of thing and all those yes. extra extracurricular things where I think they're really important skills I want them to learn and, and that sort of thing but no I think um 
my younger one suffers a bit more from missing her friends um but but yeah generally I'm quite lucky that they're they um I wouldn't say their mental health has suffered hugely they the thing is they keep saying when are we going to get get to go to and they've got all these things they want to do like say go to a theme park or mm. go bowling and and it's this constant when are we going to get to do that when's this lockdown going to be finished and I think because before we did it before and then there was an end to it and they knew that when the summer came, suddenly I said to them, right, we can start going out again now. Yes. And so then this time they're asking that earlier on. They're like, so when's this one going to be finished? Um, and I'm just constantly like, well, I, I just don't know. I've no idea. Um, and even when it's finished, I don't know when we'll be able to start doing all those things again. Um, so, yeah, I think that's their, their, they're just a bit sad that they can't do all these things that they've been looking forward to. That's a shame. That's a shame. Okay, right, Joe. Well, let's move on then to talking specifically about teaching online. Now, you've already alluded to this, but if you remember back when we first spoke about this, when you're on that teaching online series of shows I did, yeah. you were, I think, exclusively setting Hegarty Maths. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you were certainly, I don't think you were doing any any live lessons. I, I may well be wrong there on that. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we, in the first lockdown, we, um, all our work was what we call asynchronous. We very much, my school is very, it's very important to us to ensure access to everyone, the quality of access. And, and so we know we have a lot of students who live in small flats with large families. Um, they have devices, but maybe they have to share them. And we know they can't all be online at an exact time every day. So some of them can, and in fact, most of them can, but we know some might have to do their work at a different time. So right from the beginning, and we have stuck with this, like we still believe in this, we thought that we should provide experience, learning experiences that can be accessed at any time to ensure that we're not excluding anyone. So in the summer term, that meant everything was asynchronous. So in the morning, the students would wake up and they would have on show my homework. They would have Hegarty tasks set and then, you know, an English writing task set and a whole load of, say, four tasks a day set or four subjects. But they could do it whenever they could do order it however they wanted and do it whenever they wanted. And so that was the whole summer term. And then right at the end, in the sort of last few weeks, we did introduce uh, one live lesson a day. So so there might be like one day there'd be a live history lesson and the next day there'd be a live maths lesson. But they were for the whole year group. Um, so very different to what other schools were doing. And um, so we had a little, we sort of dabbled in live lessons a little bit at the end of the summer term. But really, it was it was all Hegarty I was setting. And it really had its pros and cons. Um, and yeah, we have uh, we have somewhat changed what we're doing now. Okay, well, good teaser there, Joe. I like that. A bit of a cliffhanger. Um, just before we talk about what what has changed, um, t- two questions really. Um, wh- why why did you why did the school or you yourself feel a change was was needed? And kind of the follow up to that, have you found a way to get around that access issue? That if you are now not setting asynchronous work, what what do you do for the kids who can't get online at a, a certain time? Yeah, we we are absolutely we are committed to ensuring that everyone whatever time um, or whatever their sort of Wi Fi setup or or their their home situation, we're determined that they can access the same experience. So we have found a way. Um, the reason we've changed, we we know that. We know that it, um, live lessons are engaging for not for all students. Some students absolutely hate them, but we know for a lot of students they're really engaging. Um, we did track our engagement in the summer term. We know there were some students who weren't doing, say, any of the Hegarty and unlike that. You know, we we knew that if we were to get students in live lessons and make sure those lessons were engaging and students, um, you know, in, enjoyed being in them or could see they were learning, we thought it might um, improve 
the engagement across the school. So, so yeah, that was one reason for us sort of changing things. Um, obviously, the government said they want five hours teaching a day, and we had to make sure we were meeting that requirement. Um, and also, we decided that, um, yeah, just, I don't know, we've got different technology now. So, you know, we were using Show My Homework before, and then we move. We now all our students use Teams um, a lot. You know, they they all we were using it in their computer science lessons last term. So we're in a situation now where we do have a platform that works well. But the way we use Teams is very different to how other schools use Teams. So we've we've kind of the way we've set all of our stuff up is very different. So let me explain. So what we do is in maths, we are doing every every student. Um, every class in maths gets two live and two what we call asynchronous lessons a week. So that means, say, I might have year seven on a Monday for a live lesson with me. Um, Then on the Tuesday, they will have an asynchronous maths lesson, which basically means I set them some Hegarty and other stuff like worksheet practice, which relates to what I taught them the day before. Because in that live lesson, they're not doing a huge amount of practice, but I need them to practice independently. So we have that the next day, it follows on, and they do the practice um, in an asynchronous lesson, which is basically after lunch on the Tuesday. Then on the Wednesday morning, got another live lesson with me. And on the Thursday afternoon after lunch, they got another practice lesson. So basically, they're getting four lessons a week in maths. Two of them, I'm on the screen teaching them stuff. And two of them, they're practicing independently through, say, Hegarty or worksheets and stuff like that. So that's how we've managed it this time. And I really like it because it means my students are getting lots of opportunities to get the practice done um, because if I was just doing live lessons, I'm not sure they'd be doing enough independent stuff. Um, but also they are getting the input from me, which we think is engaging. And we think it means I can kind of explain things in my way and I can all these things. But the thing is, this is the difference. Our live lessons are not like the way other schools do live lessons. Because um, the way I, I think some schools um, literally just teach their full timetable, which I think is an absolutely... Um, huge thing to ask both staff and students to do to sit in front of live lessons for five hours a day I think that must be I can't even imagine that from a staff welfare point of view Mm. there was no way we were going to do that Um, but what we do is when in teams when you go and set up um, a meeting we don't do that so if you set up a meeting and you run your live lesson through a meeting then the students can interact with you through the chat throughout um, and you could have their videos on or there's all or they could use their voices and there's all these things so we don't do that our live lessons are run through um live events so when you go to your team's calendar set up an event instead of choosing meeting you choose event which most people probably doesn't even know exists and that means that in my live event i'm basically doing a live lesson for my students but they can't have their it's a bit like a conference session they can't have their microphones on they can't have their videos on but they can talk to me through the q a um, so I'm constantly interacting with them and they're, they're, they're talking to me. I'm asking them to type things in the Q&A. They're putting answers in there and stuff like that. But it's um, it's a bit more kind of controlled. It's a bit more it, – some people could argue it's less interactive because I, I can't have their microphones on, although my understanding is a lot of teenagers are very reluctant to switch microphones on. Mm. Um, and what it does mean is that when I share that link with them before the lesson and they click through to it, um, and they watch my lesson, and then at the end, they off they go. Now, anyone who wasn't available at that time, when they click on that link later, it takes them straight to the recording. Nice. So that means that if someone is having to do all their work in the afternoon because mum's using the Wi-Fi in the morning or whatever, then that means that it's exactly the same experience for them 
because they literally click on the link and the only thing that's different is they can't type something in the Q&A that I will directly answer in the lesson. But they're still watching the same lesson. I haven't had to remember to record it and post it because it's just there automatically. Um, and we make it really clear to our students that if they can't be there in the live lesson, as long as they're watching it at some point that day, then that's fine. So there's no kind of register. We, we do check registers because we're interested in who's coming to the live lessons. But if we check they're not coming to the live lesson and we phone them up and say, we notice you're never coming to live lessons and their parents say, oh, it's OK, they're watching it in the afternoon then that's absolutely fine. So we're not like other schools that are insisting on live lesson attendance. We just don't think that works for our context and our family. And we think it puts a lot of pressure on all these families at home. So yeah, we allow we allow them to watch it later. That's interesting. That's a, a really slick solution to that that problem, Joe. Um, so I, I remember when you were very, very first back on the show, in one of the first ever episodes five years ago now, um, I asked you what I, I ask all the kind of teacher guests who come on, and that's to describe a lesson that they've taught. And then I interrupt asking about all the different things that they do. So as a blast from the past, Joe, I'm interested in you doing that for one of these online lessons. So wh- whether it's the most recent one you taught or one, one that just st- sticks in mind, can you just talk us through what one of those live lessons would look like and again I'll just interrupt asking you various things but I, I just I just want you to paint the picture of exactly what you're doing in, in these okay. lessons and actually yeah because actually there's things that I don't do in my live lessons which I'll explain later so for example at no point if I'll explain now at no point <laughs> in my in this lesson am I sending my students off to another website and I, I'm doing that very specifically because they're on all kinds of different devices and sometimes that's an absolute nightmare for them to try and be in a teens lesson and then go off to another website do some stuff and then come back so I don't do that I don't do live whiteboards which I'll talk a bit more about later but remember a lot of my students might be accessing it later and if I had a part of my lesson where I said well we're going to work on some mini whiteboards then that's not going to work for those watching it later. So my lessons are very much designed with taking into account access for all my students. So I'll talk you through it. I okay. do, it's on PowerPoint. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sharing my screen. I, um, I, use two, I use two laptops. I use my work laptop and my home laptop. And I do that just because I've got the Q&A up on one laptop. And then on my, on my work laptop, I've just got the slides on the screen, which I'm writing on. So I've got one of those, um, they're not expensive, a sort of 40 quid for one of these pens where, you know, it's like a mouse. So that means I can write on my slides. Um, and that really helps because I find it impossible to teach without writing. Um, so you're writing, when you say you're writing on your slides, you're writing on the laptop screen, are you? Almost like it's a whiteboard or are you writing no, on? No, I haven't got, I haven't got a touchscreen laptop, but um, yes, I'm writing. So, you know, like the way that you would, you know, if you normally run a PowerPoint and then the bottom left, there's a little pen tool. And I use, I, that's what I use in my normal lessons. So I'm still using that. Um, but um, I'm, I'm writing on it by using a pen tool. You know, it's basically like a mouse. So it means that, you know, so I haven't got, if I had a touch screen, it would be a little bit easier. I don't have a touch screen laptop. Can you write neatly? I know you're quite a neat yeah. writer. Anyway. No, no, I'm not. I'm a terrible, I'm a very, very bad writer. And um, my writing is awful. Um, I I can write neatly. It's fine. It, it maybe takes like a couple of lessons to, to mm. get used to it. Because I did have someone comment on my blog to say that he'd heard that the writing always comes out terribly. It's definitely better than me trying to do it with a mouse. Yes. And it's definitely better. And like I say, it's just a bit of practice. And yes, I can. I mean, bear in mind, I'm mainly circling and underlining. I'm not doing, and sometimes I'm writing a few lines of working, but I'm not writing sentences. So it doesn't really matter if my work's, I mean, it always comes out in the right place on the slide and that's the important thing. So yeah, so I think, yeah, so I, I think for me, 
if I didn't do that, then first of all, I'd find it quite hard to teach because so often I'm saying, you know, and look at, you know, say you're doing like collecting like terms, not being able to circle things and stuff like that. I'd, I'd find that really hard. So, and, and I know I could put them in as animations. Um, I don't think it's quite as effective as an animation, but also that then takes ages to plan. If I have to animate all my slides, every single step of every example, that would be a nightmare. So instead, I'm, my slides look very much like my normal lesson slides, where I might have just a question at the top and then a blank slide, and then I write I write my solutions and workings underneath. So I'm doing the modelling using handwriting rather than animations, which just works better for me. That's, that's interesting because I was going to ask that. So would you... Like if you if you take the PowerPoint, for example, of the lesson that you're describing here, if for whatever reason you were magically beamed into school and back to normal face to face, would it literally be the same PowerPoint that would use it? Um, would you not, get, are there any differences? Yeah, there, there are a few differences. So, I mean, I'll talk you through one lesson, but basically the main differences are it has to be shorter. You know, we um, the lessons, we normally teach hour lessons. These are 15 minute online lessons, but also we're finding that being really, really concise and not having a huge amount of content is working well. We, we have done some really interesting surveys with our students. And the main bit of feedback is that teachers go too fast and try and cover too much in the online lessons. So where I'm looking at lessons I normally teach and I'm going and grabbing a PowerPoint I've done before, I'm then stripping out half the lesson, really. So I need to slow down, but I need less content in there. The other things that are different are all my um, exercises are obviously on the screen, which I sometimes do anyway. But basically anything I normally do on a worksheet, obviously not going to that's not what I want. I don't want my students going off and doing a worksheet mid lesson. I want them doing short, sharp exercises with the, the questions on the screen. Um, and the other thing is I'm, I'm adding a lot more instructions in. So if I take a PowerPoint that I've used before, I'm, ha I'm adding all these boxes. So with instructions that are really clear, whereas normally I might deliver those instructions verbally. It, now it's all on the screen so anyway so yeah i'll talk you through an example so i've got, I've got I'm really sorry joe as i say i'm going to keep interrupting okay. some something sprung to mind here yeah. that i just want to get your take on now it's fascinating you say about that feedback that um students are finding that teachers are trying to fit in too much and go too fast yeah um, I've been thinking about this a lot whenever I kind of do talks about working memory and cognitive load theory and stuff. I've been trying to relate them recent, uh, recently to the implications for teaching online. And I have a bit of a theory that I wanted to run by you here, Joe, and see, see your take on this. I wonder whether that happens, like trying to fit in too much um, and kind of going too fast. And also I found talking a lot more like when i do online training i talk far more than i do whenever i do face-to-face -face yeah. training do you think this is because like you simply can't gauge the reactions of the students as easily like if you were talking really fast in a lesson and you were doing too much you'd tell even if the kids weren't saying anything you could just look at them and you know like you need yes. to slow down yeah. these are. do you think there's there's an element of this to it that you just kind of almost speed through not on autopilot but you just speed through at the pace that you kind of understand it more because you don't have that face-to-face -face kind of feedback to get from the kids, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of reasons why we speak too quickly when we teach online, um, or not even, not even necessarily like how fast we speak, but how fast we move through material. I think some of it, in a way, is kind of nerves. You know, you know when you're being broadcast into people's homes and their parents could be there, and all, there's all these various things that make delivering online lessons a little bit of a nerve-wracking experience. So we we sort of rush through things when. We're nervous um i think that yeah i think like you say where without those reactions from the students we can't gauge whether we need to slow down so we just kind of talk through it so you sort of have a load of stuff you want to explain and you just you just talk through the whole lot 
and then you say right now any questions write it in the q a or something like that whereas mm. normally you might have a hand up midway through and and you might and you might uh, or you might see on their faces that they don't know what you're talking about so you're right without the without being able to see them um without them being able to sort of stop you um and all these things and when i'm literally just talking to a computer with a slide in front of me and that's all i can see then yeah i do just i just kind of just go barging on through my explanation um so yeah i think I, i'm gonna make more effort since i've read this feedback which has been so interesting ask I just literally we had like 350 of them completed a survey and it's just the most interesting stuff about what devices they're using about where they're doing their work are they doing it in a bedroom have they got distractions um, about whether they're getting any help like all these things the main thing that's come through is that um they're feeling stressed and they're feeling rushed all the time so um and but then the main the other thing it wasn't just about the speed that we're speaking and covering things but it was literally about stripping back i mean we're saying look if we if we strip out half the content then we're not going to get for our scheme of work and then we'll just have to say well that's just going to have to be the way it is mm -hmm. then um mm -hmm. but also bear in mind that we have still got four math lessons a week and, and as long as they're so that for example I can teach them something and then say, right, now the next day you're going to practice that on Hegarty and you're going to watch him explain it again. And I, th I, I think this model is working really well where I know that I explain it, they do little bits of practice with me and then they go off and I say, right, now watch Colin Hegarty explain it or, or John Corbett or something like that if you need more explanation and then try the task on Hegarty. So I think that helps. But yeah, it's about, it's interesting, you know, just trying to cut, it's interesting in other subjects in our school, what they're saying is that what they do is they, they go off, they set these students off on like a bit of a writing task for half the lesson. Mm. So, so that means they end up having about five or 10 minutes of teaching. Then the students go off and do a writing task. Then they do the kind of end of lesson knowledge quiz, which all of us are doing. And that's it. So they're basically getting 10 minutes of input in every lesson, whereas maths is different. And, and, I, and I really like the way that my department is structuring our lessons where it's short input and examples. They have a go and then a few more, you know, a bit more input from the teacher. Then they have a go. So it's much there's much less of this go off and spend the lesson doing a long task. And there's much more of this quick bits of practice. And the long task comes the next day when they go off and practice on, on Hegarty. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think our structure, I think we're just lucky in maths that the, the, the nature of it lends itself to short bits of input then short bits of practice for most topics. Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting. Right. OK, talk us through this lesson, Joe. So set the scene here. What, what, what topic, what year group? Um, OK, so I was doing um, this was last week. I was doing percentage multipliers with my year nines. Now I have a borderline set. So half of them are going to end up on foundation. And, and half of them will end up on higher. Um, some of them are, are quite weak. And um, I, we were, we're teaching, this week I'll be teaching them compound interest. And the thing is that I know they're gonna struggle with compound interest. So I've, I've, I normally might do that in one lesson, but I've, I'm doing it in two lessons. And the first lesson that I'll do this week is pretty much just like a, the, the absolute basics of where the numbers are coming from, like you know, in a, in a very basic way without any wordy questions. And then my second lesson on it, I'm going to have some wordy questions. So I've really broken that down. But the thing is that leading up to that, I can't do compound interest if they can't do multipliers. Mm -hmm. And they did multipliers last year. But I know that um, they had an amazing teacher last year and she would have done a really good job with them. But I know that these are um, a, a class where some of them are quite weak who won't remember multipliers at all. So last lesson, um, last week on Tuesday, I did a lesson on percentage multipliers. So what I've done is I've, um, I've printed out my slides here so I can talk you through it. And it starts with, as every lesson for me does online and, in fact, in the classroom, with some recall questions. 
Now, we've been told to do this across the school, and we've been told to do it because it gives students a chance to join the lesson. So any that are joining late, you haven't already started your explanation. The thing is, is that actually drives me crazy because I don't want them missing the retrieval questions because I think the retrieval questions are really important. So actually, I don't want them thinking the first um, five minutes of my lesson is optional because it's so vital that they are trying some questions on topics I taught them last term. But anyway, that's, so that's, that's a bit of a problem for me at the moment. When they're coming in two minutes late, they've missed half of my first five minutes of retrieval questions. But what I do is, as they join the lesson, on the board, I have the title and the date, and then I have four recall questions on things I taught them last term or things I taught them last week. So it's a bit of a mixture. And then um, I've got very, on every, it's the same slide every time. They know exactly what to expect. I've got a little box, and all, all my instructions are in yellow boxes, really bright yellow box on the slide, so they know instructions will always be in the same sort of box. And it says, write down the date, write down the title, start the recall questions. If you finish all four questions, tell me in the Q&A. And, and I have an automatic timer on the screen. Don't know if you've seen those because I blocked about them the other day. It's literally a gift timer. So I literally just paste it onto the slide and it just starts as soon as the lesson starts. So that, so that means they can see the timer counting down. It means if they join a couple of minutes late, they can see they've only got a couple of minutes left to do the warm up. And then I go quiet and I sit and wait. And I think all teachers would agree that's the kind of weird bit where you sit and wait. Um, and so, the, yeah, the, when they join the lesson then, if I'm not speaking at that time, they can at least see the instructions. And it's the same every lesson. It's write down the title on the day and do your recall questions. And where, where are the kids writing this? Do you have you given books? Or yeah, my, my class, um, uh, I'm different to all the other maths teachers. My, my lot take their maths books home with them every day. Um, you can only do that in a school where you know your students will remember to bring their books in. And I know some schools would never dream of letting students take their maths books home because they would just forget to bring them back in. Um, all my colleagues um, le get the students to leave their books at school. So I believe those students are just writing on paper or whatever they've got available. We, we did it last time. We sent them all home with exercise books. But this time, obviously, we didn't know there was lockdown coming so we didn't send them home with um blank exercise books but yeah my lot my class because they all have their maths books at home are doing it in their maths book um, and that means i'm telling them that they should set their work out like they normally would so i'm hoping when they come back to school for those that have engaged and done the right thing i should see just a whole load of maths lessons and it'll look lovely and it'll be like they never went anywhere <laughs> and um, in terms of like kind of the answers and stuff, what are you doing? Just project on the answers no, and then ask. I, I, any I still, I still, I think we've talked about this before. I still don't believe in just projecting the answers. I don't think it helps anyone make any progress. So what I do is after the, I normally give them four or five minutes. Um, after that time's up, then I'm putting up the, I'm putting the next slide is basically the four recall questions, but I haven't got the instructions on this. I've got a bit more space. And then I'm literally going through all four questions using my pen and, and writing and modeling the answers and telling them to mark them. I really don't believe in just quickly putting up the answers and moving on because for, I just think that if they didn't know how to do it, they still won't know how to do it. So there's no point in that. So yeah, I go through them quickly. They mark them. Um, and then, and that's it. So that's the, that's the beginning part of the lesson done. Then I'll, I'll remind them what we're learning and what stage we're at. Because right at the beginning, just, just on that, Joe, you know I'm going to interrupt yeah. you. Are you um, are you asking if there's any problems or anything uh, like if, with any of the recall questions? No, that's true. Right at the first time I taught them, I I told them that what I want them to do is use the Q and A to let me know if there's anything they're not sure about. Yeah, it, I think the thing is though, that's a bit like in a lesson. I can't in the starter say right. 
anyone want to talk to me about any questions they found difficult there because I'll be there all day on the warm-up so no it's the same as in the lesson I'll go through it I tell them to make corrections or to write down the you know to, to write down the correct method but I'm not specifically saying right let's talk about what issues you had with the warm-up because it will just end up taking the whole thing um, got it. some of them will obviously share oh I got them all right and that sort of thing but they, yeah, that's not particularly helpful because no one's telling me oh I got them all wrong um, but that's fine I, I know the class I know who would have struggled with them and all that sort of thing um yeah then so yeah then where so then I'm I'm if it's the beginning of a unit I'm telling them this is what I'm going to cover in this unit and I'm setting out the sort of order of lessons so they know exactly where they're starting and where they're aiming for um now I told them in this lesson that they had to have a calculator now that's something that I know a lot of schools are struggling with because one um approach here is just don't teach any calculator topics um, but the problem is that if this is now going to go on till Easter, then that is quite hard to totally avoid calculator topics. Now, I'm teaching compound interest, so I can't avoid calculators with that topic. But for this one, if they don't have their school calculator at home, they could use a phone or computer calculator because actually compound interest. Well, I'm just thinking about it now. You need to use an index, I suppose. And they I, I don't know if, you know, they, if they're using a phone calculator, that's going to be a difficult, isn't it? So but I'm telling them that they need to have some form of calculating device near them. So I do think it's an interesting issue. A lot of people are saying, let's just avoid teaching calculator topics. Um, but I, I think it's going to be really hard to keep doing that. And you'll end up, um, you know, I, I've talked before about how important it is that students are fluent with using their calculators. So avoiding them is something that's uh, that's not a good thing. Um, anyway, so then um, now they've done uh, percentage multipliers before. They did it in year eight. So I turned on that I'm recapping this, but I know a lot of them will have forgotten. And I'm literally then talking through an example where I'm giving them a rule. So I'm, I'm saying, you know, you, can, you, you want to increase by 76%. So what do we do? We can, and there's various ways we can explain this, but I can say, look, I'm adding it to 100%. And then I'm turning that into a decimal by dividing by 100. And then I've got, a, a, and this is what's a bit different to how I normally do it. I've got a slide at the top in red, in big red letters, it says, write this down, you have two minutes. And then it's got the rule and an example. And I'm literally just going quiet while they write it down. Okay, and so this is a, very, this is a bit different to how I'd normally teach. So there's a little bit of writing down a rule. Okay, and then I've got keep, I keep that on the screen. And I've learned this very quickly, not to remove my example from the screen. Because if I then go to the next slide and say, right now you do some, then a lot of them might say straight away, oh, I've already forgotten how to do it. <laughs> I literally just told them about the slide before. So I'm now keeping the rule and the example that we're meant to write down on the screen. So whenever I give them a set of questions to do, a quick set of practice questions, I've always got an example that I've got sort of on the screen in the corner um, in, a, in a green box. So I have all these little rules so they know that's if they get stuck, look at the example. That's um, interesting. That's uh, I was speaking to um, Ollie Lovell um, about this, uh, just um, about his book um, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, and he was saying about online lessons. This is a real big problem. This it's called the transient information yeah. effect. And yeah, if if you say it once, you think it's in the kid's head, but then it's <laughs> it's gone. Whereas in a classroom, perhaps you've written that on the non-interactive whiteboard, exactly, so yes. always there, and it's just not there on the screen. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. Yeah, I realise that because yeah, normally I would um, I would have written that. You're know, like you say, I would have written that on on with board pen on the other whiteboard and just left it up there while they're working. And I realised it was when I'm last week I was teaching year eight. We're doing fractions. They've done fractions a million times before, but I was teaching them adding fractions just as a recap. And I said, and I thought, you know, they want to. Have to do this already and then I put the exercise up and it was just a load of adding fraction stuff and then I got three comments in the Q&A saying um oh I've already forgotten what you just said 
And that's, <laughs> and that's when I realized I need to, every time I put a little exercise up, I just need a little box in the corner with one example, just, just for those students who just need that to glance at that, to remind themselves what I just said. That's good. That's yeah. good. So in this case, I, I then put, so I put the example up, even though they should have just written it down, but you never know who's not written it down. And then I've literally asked them eight questions. And I've literally just said, what multiplier would I use to increase by the following percentages? And they're increasingly difficult, as you'd expect. You know, the, it's um, you've got a 17.5% and you've got a 100% increase as the last two questions. Um, so anyway, that, and I literally put a timer on and I give them two minutes to do that. And given they literally should just be writing down numbers, two minutes is probably enough to do eight questions. And can I just ask at that point, because this is what I, I find difficult. I find this difficult in the classroom, let alone online. What do you do in those two minutes? Are you just shutting up and not saying a word? Or do um, you find, are you tempted to chip in with the odd little comment here and there? Well, um, so, so sometimes after sort of 10 seconds or however long I think it will take me to do the first question, I will suddenly then say, just make sure you've got the first one right and I write it on the board because you know there's that thing isn't it where some of them will just sort of go through all the questions and not have to get them all wrong so I sometimes I'll just interrupt them for a second to say just check that first answer here it is and the other thing I'm saying to them is I'm going to go quiet now but if you get stuck come to the Q&A and tell me which question you're stuck on and then so basically while they're working they can probably hear me typing because I'm replying to people in the Q&A so I'll get someone say oh miss I'm stuck on question E and then I'll be replying to them through the Q&A if loads of them ask on the same question then just like in class I'll say right I'm really sorry to interrupt you all while you're working but loads of you are asking me about question E so I'll go through it with you all together. So it's actually exactly the same as I would do in class. The only thing that's different is I'm not circulating, although I wasn't doing that last term anyway. So, yeah, it's it's very similar. You know, I'll be helping them individually with things, but trying mainly to stay quiet. And I think the staying quiet thing is just so important because, you know, they need to concentrate. And it's only for a couple of minutes that I'm, I'm having to stay quiet for. I'll tell you what, just on a, on a kind of technology point of view here, the two screens is crucial for this, Joe, right? Like if, even like if you're on Zoom or something and you're projecting, um, you're, you're, you're showing your, your presentation kind of full screen, you can't monitor the, the question. Yeah, otherwise, like, so on Teams, if I ran my PowerPoint in reading mode, um, which is just, you know, when you if you run a presentation at the bottom right, you've got the different options. And I normally just click on present. If you actually click on reading mode there, then you can see different windows at the same time. So you can go through your PowerPoint and you can see the Q&A. The problem is in reading mode, you can't write on your slides. So that's why I'm using two devices. Now, I believe I read somewhere that Microsoft are developing teams in such a way that you will actually be able to do a presentation in present mode and see the Q&A but that's as far as I know that's not available yet but yeah you're right if you if you only have your slide on the screen then you do need another device to be able to interact with the students while they're doing that work is that's something I found really helpful and you've got the size issue as well right you don't like it's just gonna be so small if you're on a laptop screen you've got a chat window open yeah. and you've got a powerpoint yeah it really yeah two screens i think is, is, is but I, I also i find it really helpful because while i'm doing my live event in teams when i have two laptops open the on the second screen where i'm doing my q a i can see what they're seeing and so i could so then and that really helps just to confirm i know they're seeing my slide in my face um, and it's just that nice confirmation you know so i'm constantly glancing at that so in fact I was doing a lesson last Monday and my Wi-Fi kept cutting out, but I had no idea my Wi-Fi was cutting out because on my screen, all I had was my PowerPoint. And it was only because on the other laptop, I noticed that I kept freezing. And that's how I, so then I could say to them, I'm really sorry. I think, and and in fact, I had to type it in the end as a sort of announcement in the Q&A. 
um, sorry about my Wi-Fi because, you know, they couldn't actually hear me because I was just frozen on the screen. Um, so, yeah, I do think having a second device really helps um, for lots of reasons. And it's not um, it's something that I've just literally realized sort of a few weeks ago. And it's it's been really helpful for me. And I don't think it works. I don't think a phone will work. It might it might work fine on a tablet, but not um, if I join team a team's live event on my phone. It doesn't let me um, come in as a presenter. So I can't get the Q&A. Got it. Got it. Right. Okay. So we're at the point of the lesson where your students are practicing. Yeah. It, it's a two minute task though. It's a very, very short task. So the, my lessons are mainly made up of these very quick tasks. Mm. The way through. Um, you know, I don't want to give them a long task where they're going to go off and get a drink or something. They, they, they need to be with me the whole lesson. So then I'm giving them, oh, then I'm explaining to them, right, now we know how to find a multiplier for increasing. Here's an example where we're going to use one. So I say, right, I want to increase £60 by 25%. First, I find my multiplier. Then I multiply it by the £60. I use my calculator. So I'm talking them through that. Then I'm putting that example, keeping that example on the screen and asking them to do a couple like that. So mm. not just find the multiplier, but then actually using the multiplier. So again, a very short exercise where they're just doing a couple of questions. Um, and then that one, I said... Because it was only two questions I asked them to do, uh, two increased questions, I then asked them to type their answer in the Q&A. And at that point, if I'm seeing a whole load of correct answers coming in the Q&A, then I think, right, they're with me. I don't know they're all with me, but I know that some of them are with me. So that's good. Um, I don't I don't always ask them to type all their answers in the Q&A because in the last exercise, I gave them eight quick questions to do. Mm. And that would really, I want them to do that on paper. I don't want them to have to keep typing it. I mean, that would really slow them down. That would be a real pain. So I just want them to do that on paper. But then if I'm, when I, the next exercise, well, I'm just giving them two questions to do. I'm like, type them in the Q&A. Let me see that you, you, you're you with me. And just, just on that, Joe, you, you mentioned before that you're not using any of these online whiteboard tools. Yeah. And again, you did a wonderful blog post sharing um, all yeah. the different resources people are using. And it's like, obviously, we're big Twitter users. It's, everybody's chatting about the, the one particular online whiteboard tool yeah. at the moment, and people are finding it useful. Okay, just so I can get this right in my head, is the reason that you're not doing that, primarily it's because um, some students are going to be accessing this lesson uh, later on. But are there other reasons? Is it because yeah. uh, access reasons and stuff because it just screams to me like at this point in the lesson it'd be brilliant right yeah. for you to see all the answers of the kids to a particular question and, and respond accordingly it, so what, what's the rationale yeah. i think we have to be really careful because there's lots of people saying i couldn't possibly teach live lessons without this and mm. you know we've been around long enough to know about tech fads and how you have to be very cautious of them and you have to be very careful not to see someone say you shouldn't be teaching a live lesson without this whiteboard tool and people will say, will feel bad and think oh my lessons aren't good enough now i almost fell into that trap last week because when you asked me to come on the podcast I thought I bet Craig's going to ask me about whether I've used whiteboard tools so I'm going to try one this week so I decided <laughs> I decided last week I'm going to have to do this because I should be able to talk about these things in the podcast with some experience of them and then I yeah I almost put one in my lesson I was getting all set up with it and then I thought actually then I realized that would be awful for anyone let's say that out of a class of let's say I've got 25 students who normally come to my lesson but five of them access it at a different time what's what's their experience going to be when they click on that link and they're watching me explain something and then they're watching me say right everyone now let's click on this whiteboard tool and then that i'm not that if they click on that whiteboard tool i'm not there you know i've gone at that point from the white the live whiteboard tool so the student watching it later is therefore that whole chunk of the lesson is kind of lost on them um and so that then i thought i'm not going to do that my lessons should be accessible to all my students at any time and i don't want to be ex exclusive i don't want to say if you're not in a live lesson then sorry but you can't do this but 
So right, let me let me just play devil's advocate a little yeah. bit. Here, Joe. Like I'm imagining I'm one of the kids who um, who is joining it late or whatever. Like surely it'd be quite a good experience if you say right, okay, we're doing it on whiteboard tools now, and you could say something like, if you're watching this lesson late later, just do this on pen and paper, and then to be able to still like there's 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 massive benefits surely to being able to see all the kids who are live at the moment they're working and respond accordingly Maybe. Just... I, mean, I'm, I am worried about like you said device issues I mean so, yeah. someone I saw tweeting about this was suggesting that all of her students are doing this on tablets now we, we've surveyed our students and we know the majority of our students are using a laptop which means mm. that to write on a whiteboard tool they can do that with a mouse I guess it's not the end of the world um, we know some of our students are accessing their lessons on tablets and a very small minority are accessing them on phones which is not ideal for anyone some students get in a right muddle when they're in teams and they have to click on a link and it takes them to it on their tablet saying it takes them to another browser and and then they don't and they're they're just in a bit of a mess with that um so i do think i mean i could try this but i just i kind of feel like i haven't got much time as it is and i and i feel like i kind of already i know these students really well i know i know that they're going to tell me if they're stuck because they're going to say in the q a um that I, I do it. I mean, I haven't got to it yet, but I do a knowledge quiz at the end, which does give me this absolute, like, really clear information on what they've understood. And I don't think it would make a huge difference if I could see them doing it live. I just, I kind of feel like I'm experienced enough to know what their misconceptions are going to be so that I've already addressed them. Um, you're, I mean, yeah, I, I know that mini whiteboards are a really, really useful teaching tool that lots of teachers use a lot. Um, in normal classrooms and I totally understand why people are using them now um, I, I am my main my number one thing I'm doing with my my life lessons is keep it simple and yes. so, and I and I just feel like they're absolutely fine as they are and I don't need to go exploring all this fancy tech I feel like I'm absolutely fine with the keep it simple approach it's interesting isn't it I guess if you've if you've got a class that you don't know particularly well, or you've got lots of students who won't be, who'll be maybe afraid to admit that they're struggling or mistakes or so on, whiteboards can really help them in in that sense. But if you know your class and you know that they will let you know in the chat if they're struggling and so on and so forth, I guess you're okay, right? Would that would that be the rationale? The thing is, I know that some of them won't tell me they're struggling, but then I know they'll do really badly on the quiz at the end. Um, yes. The thing is, if they, well, I suppose what happens is, I, I suppose that. In the way you'd normally use mini whiteboards, when people are using these online mini whiteboard tools, they might be watching it happen live and they might they might correct students. So they might say, oh, um, Jamie, you've just, um, just, just have a look because I think you've just made a silly mistake there. So they're literally giving that feedback live or they might say, um, the thing is, you can't hold up a whiteboard, I suppose. Maybe you can. Maybe you can choose a whiteboard to show to everyone. But you know that when you normally use many whiteboards, mm. you might take a student's whiteboard and say, everyone have a look at how this working set out mm. or what's this misconception. Um, so I, um, I, I can see the benefit of it. Um, I, I just, I just, like I said, I'm just not convinced that um, I'm not convinced it's enough. It's worth it for me. But then, you know, like I say, we're, we're all different in our styles of teaching. And I'm not normally a massive mini whiteboard user anyway. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting as you said like the key message there is if it's working and it's working for your students and you you're keeping it simple and they and you're happy that you get the response you need the, the, there's a real argument against overcomplicating things and i think that's a, a big one that just like just the practicalities of clicking on a link that takes you out of teams or whatever yeah. you're in and then having to navigate back there it's all extra stuff that can really derail lessons right yeah and the thing is that people who are using these whiteboard tools they are saying their students are loving them i'd be really interested to know have they surveyed 
kind of have they done a certain do they actually know that or is it just that a few students are saying in the chat oh this is great miss because you've got to be very careful about things where you're getting good feedback on some things but actually you're disengaging a, a lot of students who are struggling with the tech or who are trying to write using a mouse and just finding it ridiculous or all these things so it might be that the teachers who are using this have got feedback from all students in their class that this is this is great and they love it and, and in which case that's really good for them um but i'm just um i suppose i'm probably more cautious of tech things um just because i'm old um i don't know, <laughs> I don't know but um I'm, yeah like i say, i just, just I, my main my main concern was i didn't want the experience to be different for students who aren't joining live um i know that um some of my students the ones that whose work i'd really want to see aren't in the bloody lesson anyway you know I, I, basically i know that some um i know that some schools are managing to get like really really high attendance and it very much differs by school. I was talking to my friend who works in a grammar school, and she's got pretty much full attendance in her live lessons. She's got that because it's a grammar school, so the students are naturally more affluent. Most of them have tutors in order to get in the school. They've all got their own devices. I am not getting 100% attendance to my lessons, although my attendance is very good. There's always a few students, say two or three students who are absent, um, and, you know, they're the ones normally who are going to be making all the mistakes and the misconceptions and, and struggling because. Uh, so actually, yeah, I I feel like I'm just really I'm really I'm really conscious of being inclusive of everyone. Mm. I don't know, it's difficult, but yeah, I do think um, it's quite possible. I, I can I can I totally agree that the whiteboard tool is probably amazing. I can't say that from my own experience, and is and is probably worth trying out if you are doing meeting style lessons remember my lessons are live events they're not they're not in meetings so it's a bit different even just sharing a link in the middle of the meeting is a bit different for me um but yeah i can i can i can imagine they're, they're worth trying um but like i say i'm not i'm not normally a big mini whiteboard user anyway and i know that's really bad because it's really good to use mini whiteboards but there you go. <laughs> no mini whiteboards no manipulatives joe i'll tell you what i don't know why i get you on this show well i used to, i'm using loads of counters at home with my children yeah <laughs> right okay so back back to the lesson so am i right in saying it's this kind of cycle between exam short example bit of short practice yeah. example practice would that be how it pans out yes because the rest of the lesson i'm doing decrease and i've got all these i've got like write down the rule two minutes then do some practice two minutes then let's do you know so all these little two minute things and then um at the end i'm saying right now let's look at this in a word problem so i'm giving an example with um a person receiving a salary and getting a five percent pay rise and then the very end of the lesson, I'm giving them um, a, a task that I give them five minutes on. So it's a bit of a long, I mean, it's, it's still only five minutes. It's still a short task, but it's, you know, it's a little bit longer than the other sort of very quick two minute ones I was giving them. Um, and would that be, would that be where like, because we, we know you're a big Don Stewart fan, would that be where some of his problems would, they, if they were fitting anywhere, would they come in that? Yes, end? exactly. They'd be in the end bit, although I think probably a lot of Don Stewart needs a bit longer. So, but yeah, that's where, so I might say so in this case, I've given um, six wordy questions on percentages. So and then there'll always be a stretch question on the screen as well. Now, sometimes I'm running out of time to get to that exercise at the end because actually the quick exercises and then me going through them and that, that sometimes is taking up the whole lesson. So sometimes I'm actually running out of time for my kind of big finale of my let's bring this all together. Um, but I'm learning, you know, I'm getting getting the hang of it. Um, so, for example, I'm teaching multiplying fractions tomorrow to, and I'm doing, um, I, I haven't got a big, uh, oh, the exercise at the end is an algebraic fraction one um but that's kind of you know it's, it's again teach 
teach a little bit, practice, teach a little bit, practice. And the exercises are anywhere between two and six minutes. Um, anyway, then, so that's it, that's it. And then I say to them, right, everyone, we've marked that. We go through the answers. Now you're all going to do your knowledge check. And this is it's an exit ticket, basically. Um, Can I just ask, just before the knowledge check, and my final interruption, I promise. Um, am I right in saying, and this isn't a mention of criticism, just, just out of interest. Um, at any point, are you able to replicate the idea of, like a student telling you how they have gone through solving the problem or getting different answers and so on, like you may do in a class. Have you found a way to make that work? Um, only, no. So only if they're going to, if they want to share that in the Q&A. So there are lots of times where I say, right, if you want to tell me something in the Q&A, then do. Yes. Um, actually, it's difficult because I think, I feel like I'm teaching lots of, uh, teaching lots of very skills-based stuff at the moment. I'm trying to think if I've got something coming up where there'll be more opportunities to that. But actually, I'm just... Um, the next day after the lesson, when they do their two Hegarty tasks, they also do a written. So I give them three things to do in an hour lesson. I give them two Hegarty tasks and then I give them a written thing. Um, and at that point, I'm saying, I'd love to see your photos of your work if, if you can send them in. But no, at no point am I kind of, I don't think that's probably that is something that's missing. Actually, you're right, is the opportunity for them to share their methods because I can't switch on audio. So that would be interesting, though, just how well that works anyway. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm intrigued by that because a lot of kind of feedback I've been getting from, from teachers and, and colleagues I've been working with is that, yes, students are quite happy to type things in the chat, but it seems a really big thing to turn on your audio and, and talk or the video on and so on. It's yeah, I think it's one of those things that sounds like it will work really well, but for whatever reason, social pressure or it's just a bit weird and stuff, I, I get the sense that that's not working particularly well. I'm, I may be wrong on that. Yeah, and I think another thing you have to consider is it's, we're trying to we're, we're really trying to distill um, teaching into this really short space of time and just yeah. pick out. And the thing is that we all know that sometimes you'll get a student who will say who will explain something and they're kind of at the board or they're explaining it verbally. And it will take a very long time. And actually, and the angel is like, no, that's not, not, that's not how you do it. Um, and actually, what I'm worried about is losing students' attention. It's almost like we're being concise and we're being snappy and we're being, we're just being like, let's, as the minimum possible to try and keep their focus. So it's like, we're going to do a bit of talking, but then I want you all doing this task. And we're going to go through this. I don't know. I just feel like we're having to be more concise than ever before. Um, and one of the bits maybe I'm cutting is the students talking. And there'll be some people who think that's horrific, but it's not to say that I'm keeping them silent. I mean, they're at home. They can, you know, they can, I'm not, it's not like they're sitting in absolute silence and I'm forcing them just to listen to these very short explanations from me. Um, and uh, Yeah, but I'm not giving them the opportunity to say, actually, Yes, I did it this way. But the thing is, just so you know what it's like when you're an experienced teacher, you'll say, I'm going to go through this question now. Now, I know there would have been other methods some of you would have used, and, and feel free to, to tell me in the QA if you want to talk to me about how you did it. But I'm going to just talk you through one way of doing this question. You know, where you're emphasizing that you may have done something different, but this is one way of doing it. So, sort of, um, we have to make sure our students know all the time that we know some of you may have made this mistake, and let me tell you what you did. If you got this answer, I probably did this it's you know it's that yeah. whole thing of I know what some of you will have done wrong um so yeah so that's um but you're right that is I guess missing is that the sort of collaboration and the uh, student input 
is. Do, do you get the sense, Joe, just on that, that because um, I think we, we've we've spoke about most things on the podcast over the years, but one thing um, I'm pretty sure we spoke about is is how certainly when I first started teaching, one of the things I found the most challenging was to preempt where students were going to go wrong, and I was constantly surprised in lessons with some of the yeah. mistakes and misconceptions students have. I just get the feeling that perhaps for a less experienced teacher teaching online is going to be even more challenging because as you say it's so much harder even if you're using the fancy online mini whiteboards or the chat it's so much harder to get that feedback for how, from from the kids for how well they're finding it and where they're going wrong so you've got to be you've got to be able to pre as you're describing preempt where kids are going wrong and that's difficult if you don't have that experience right well do you think that's a fair point yes i agree and actually i do think that our knowledge checks at the end are helping because what's happening is then we are able to give whole class feedback the next yes. lesson. um and i think that has been it's been at, i love i love the um these knowledge checks at the end of the lesson and yeah i've always i like i've not done much on exit tickets in the past but this is brilliant because this is how exit tickets should work in that they are zero marking for the teacher mm. an immediate um idea of how well did you teach that lesson because you can get that by looking at the overall scores did they understand what you taught them but also where are students struggling or where are the misconceptions and then next lesson that's when you do the whole class feedback and it's and it's it's this has been probably the only thing in online teaching that's better than real teaching is that that in that act that feedback i get from them in those knowledge checks at the end of the lesson and then the way i'm able to respond to them so this is absolutely brilliant that they can do it. I mean, I'll tell you something, you're building these up. <laughs> this could be an anticlimax. Go on, what, what, to talk us through these. So we, we're at the point now, are we? Kind of five minutes to go in the lesson, something like that? Yeah, so we have to be very careful because this is another thing we got some feedback on. And this feedback we got from students really was like just the most helpful thing. I mean, we did like a whole school survey straight after an assembly and we had about two thirds of the students respond. And this problem was, the problem with that is we know that it's the, the least engaged students wouldn't have responded. Yeah. But however, the students that were responding were saying they find it very stressful, A, when a teacher overruns. And actually, that's terrible. If a teacher's, um, you can imagine the experience for the student, and I've been guilty of it before. If you overrun and they're meant to be in another live lesson, then that's really messed up the start of that other teacher's live lesson. So it's just like in school where you should never overrun a lesson. Um, but it can be hard to get the timings right because we're all a bit inexperienced at this. And what we find is, so with my students, I, I preset the assignment on Teams and the assignment is a 10 question forms quiz and it pops up on Teams um, about 15 minutes before the end of the lesson because I know that I'll probably set it, I'll probably want them to start doing it 10 or 5 minutes before the lesson ends. So it pops up on their Teams. Now what I'm doing there is I don't want them to do it before the lesson. So I do not want it just there from the morning because yeah. I don't want the whole, they have to complete it after I've done the teaching or it's not telling me anything or, or, or it's, you know, it's, just, mm. it's just not mm. helpful. So it pops up. So they can't do it before it pops up. If it does, when it pops up in the middle of the lesson, hopefully, you know, they're in the middle of their like five minute exercise at the end. And, I'm, and if it mm. pops up, sometimes I say, don't do that quiz yet. Wait till I tell you to. And then... Um, I've set them the quiz. Now, the problem is, in the first couple of weeks, I was giving them five minutes to do it. And actually, that's re that was really not enough time because it would take me maybe two minutes to fill it in. 
but you know that students obviously have to think about it whereas I can do it just straight away so I need to give them enough time that if they need to write things on paper to work it out they've got enough time they don't have to rush they can check their answers so now I'm trying to leave them about seven minutes to do it even though this is normally 10 very quick questions but even if they even if they do it in say three or four minutes that's fine they've got a little break between their next lesson and that's okay so we've been reassured by um, the member of staff in my school, the member of leadership who's running the virtual school, we've been reassured that it's okay if students end up with five minute gap between lessons. And we shouldn't think that there's something wrong with that. So if I finish 10 minutes before my lesson's due to end and tell them to do the quiz and they only spend three minutes on it, that's fine. I shouldn't worry that they've got some downtime there. Um, but yeah, generally the quiz is, so basically the quiz is um, either, question, either questions I've written or questions I've stolen from diagnosticquestions.com. So thank you for that. <laughs> and um, I put them into a forms quiz. And obviously my, my school is a Microsoft school. So that means that they literally click on the link in Teams. They um, It takes them straight to the quiz. They fill it in and submit. And then I can I get all this amazing analysis through. I get all their results. I can, ret- I can give them feedback on it. I can return it to them. There's all these cool things I can do. Um, but the, the main thing I'm doing there is uh, checking if, if the whole – so what was really interesting was I had um, – I had in the first uh, in the first couple of weeks, my year eight class was taught by another teacher and they kept getting like zero and one on their end of knowledge, end of uh, lesson quizzes. So then I was like, well, what's going on? They're obviously really struggling with he was teaching them um, air of a circle for the first time and they were really struggling with it. But if you looked at the quizzes, it was it was more to do with the fact they weren't putting units in their answers and stuff. So so we're getting better at writing quizzes to make sure that students can't get disheartened by having correct answers marked wrong, which would be a terrible thing. We don't want any student, you know. So, so let me just get my head around this. Is yeah. it so it's not just all multiple choice? No, no so like a mixture. Most of mine are multiple choice because multiple choice um, means first of all that I can use um, questions from diagnosticquestions.com, which saves me a lot of time. But also by having multiple choice. It means that, um, that I don't have any of these problems with students um, being not wrong when they're right. Also, by using multiple choice, I can attire, I can have feedback with quite answers, which I don't do very often. But, you know, at the end, when they, they can check their score, um, if they got one wrong, I can actually have a little thing that says what they did wrong, which is really nice. So, like, for example, if they click on um, option A and it was meant to be option C and they go and check their answer at the end, next option A, it will say, oh, you've accidentally done this thing. And they can see exactly why they, why they went wrong. The thing is, I don't like spending too long on those things, so I'm not sure people read them as much as they should. I don't want to spend forever making these amazing quizzes which gives them all this auto-feedback when actually only one or two of them even bother looking at it. So we've got to be a bit careful. Just give, us, just give us a sense, Joe. How long would it take you to set up one of, the, one of these quizzes? Um, okay, so the quiz that I set up yesterday, I decided to do it all using... Um, multiple choice questions from diagnosticquestions.com <laughs> I know I'm not meant to use it like that but I do need them doing I can't get them to go to your site to do the quiz because I need it in forms so yes. that it all feeds back into teams automatically yes. so that's why I'm doing that and so I think I can't remember what I was doing a quiz on I was doing it on percent turning fractions into percentages so I went to diagnosticquestions.com, filtered for that, because it's so easy to use, such a good website, <laughs> filtered for um, fractions and percentages. And then I literally found, so every, I found 10 questions I liked, which I right-click, save image, and gave it a number, so and save them to a folder. And that probably took about 10 minutes to do. So I end up with questions 1 to 10 saved on my computer in a folder. And then I go to uh, forms where I've got a template and all I have to do is insert the 10 images because I've already set up a template where it's got the options A, B, C, D and all that sort of thing. 
So it's literally just go, I have to just insert the 10 images on the 10 questions. So um, when I'm being quick, I reckon it takes 20 minutes. If I'm writing the questions myself, then it takes a bit more thinking. So then obviously that's going to take a bit longer. Um, sometimes I don't want them to do multiple choice. Sometimes I want them to do um, type in answers. And then you have to try and think of every possible format they might answer in and all these things. Um, um, it was interesting last week I set a, in fact, it was the same class, year nines, they were doing percentages and they were doing percentage increase using multipliers. And there was a question where they had, the answer was 62 pounds and 10 pence. And what was really interesting was most of them put 62.1 or they put a pound sign and 62.1. Yeah. And I didn't allow any of those. I could have allowed them because you can type in all these different formats. Yeah. I only allowed pound 62.10. And then a lot of them obviously would have been annoyed because they got it wrong. In fact, only one in the class put it in the format I wanted. <laughs> and then when I go, I get the next lesson, I said, now, I know some of you are going to think that my quiz has marked you wrong incorrectly, but I'm going to explain. So I told them that I've said they had to put it in that format because I need them to learn the lesson here that if they don't put that zero on the end in the GCSE they won't get the mark so I've told them that that's one of the few examples where I'm insisting on a certain format answer it has to have the pound sign it has to have the decimal what's really interesting was someone replied in the Q&A and he said but miss isn't 62.1 62 pounds and one pence and that was so interesting. I was like, wow, I was like, he thinks that because he's seeing a point one and he's thinking that that is a penny. And I was like, that's such an interesting thing that he said. And I, I don't think I'd ever really, it's ever really occurred to me that some students might think that when they get a money answer. I think I have probably seen it before, actually, but I've never really sort of thought to address it. But anyway, so, so that's, um, yeah, so I do write some quizzes where they type in their answers. Um, and, and yeah, so then I'm, like I say, so the quiz pops up, I get all their answers, and then I, then I pick one or two questions to do whole class feedback on in the next um, in the next lesson. And I could, if I wanted, give individual feedback on every quiz they do, but I don't do that all the time because it's really time consuming. So I do that at the end of a topic only. So at the end of the topic, I say this one isn't an exit ticket. This one is an end of unit test. And so they'll get their usual ten questions. But I, you know, I'm sort of making out it's more important because I'm calling it a test. And then I give them all individual feedback. And is there, I mean, th this sounds absolutely brilliant, Joe. And I agree with you. This is one thing that seems to work far better than it would do face to face. Yeah. I, think, I think it's really good. And I, I've, I've had the same issue with exit tickets. I've, I've never really found a way to make them work apart from I'll ask a diagnostic question at the end and kids will just vote and yeah. explain that. And I'll use that as kind of information. My, my question is, if you're doing these um, four lessons a week and you're alternating between live and then a practice lesson and a live and practice, what, what do you do if like you get the results from this knowledge quiz and it's you can tell there's big problems and yet you know that they're going to be practicing next? Is there any way you can kind of intervene before you see them again in the live lesson if that makes sense um I guess if you know if everyone got sort of zero or one on the on the quiz at the end of the lesson and I realized that I've made a mess of explaining it then I'd probably change my plan for what they're going to practice the next day because actually at the moment I'm doing all my lesson planning at the weekend for the whole week ahead which is not something I'd normally do but I'm getting really stressed during the week so um yeah so at the moment my class my year nines are doing a lesson on interest tomorrow where I'm introducing the idea of compound interest 
then I've got them doing a practice task on um, on the basics of it the next day. Now, if they in the quiz do so badly that I think actually that practice task is just a waste of time, I think I need another lesson on it before I give them that, then I think I'll just change the practice task I've set them and I might get them to practice some standard form or something, which is something that they did two weeks ago that they need more practice on. So yeah, I, I can I can then adjust it and, and change my plan for the next lesson. So even though the, pra- the lessons are organized live practice, live practice, they don't have to be practicing the thing I just taught them. In fact, some teachers are making are doing more teaching in those practice lessons and they're making videos of themselves doing more teaching. So I could do that as well. I could say, right, I'm going to have another go at explaining this and I could film myself. So the practice lessons can involve watching videos if we want them to. Um, and yeah, like I say, we don't specifically have to practice the thing they've just been taught. We can just do any, basically it's like maths homework, that practice lesson. So yeah, it's any homework that we think would be suitable to set them. Right, Joe, before we start to talk about tips and resources, just one quick question um, on this. Do you find that, obviously, apart from the kind of relationships and face-to-face, do you find there's anything else kind of missing from your online lessons that are in your face-to-face lessons? I'm, I'm thinking about some of the wonderful kind of questions and tasks that you often blog about or you say in your maths gems. You, you mentioned that you could perhaps still do a Don Steward, but are there some things that you simply can't do in these uh, these online lessons? Um, yeah, there's there's some there's some tasks which really lend themselves to being printed out, and um, there's no way I would expect a family to have a printer at home. I think that's a terrible thing to expect of people. Um, it's um, my it's interesting because my daughters keep getting set tasks where you really can't do it without a printer, and luckily we do have one at home. But yeah, I do feel like there's some things like, and it, it's not even even as some as simple as say. Um, I tried. To, I, I was considering putting a code breaker on the screen, mm. and it was just—it's just a standard code breaker. I just know that my students find them really engaging in lessons, and I realised it was just a silly thing to put on. The, it just didn't work on the screen. It was, it, you know, in their book they—they they could have done it in their book. It wouldn't have been the end of the world, but it just would have been better printed out on paper. So my lessons have become, and I've always put um, short exercises on the screen throughout my lessons. I, I, you know, on the on the board, I find that a good, you know, like um, a set of questions from variationtheory.com or something like that works really well in a lesson so I think my lessons have just become more about those and less less about the sort of some of the other activities that I'd normally give if I had more time and if and if I could hand them out on paper I don't I think it's um I think it's still fine though I think they're still learning um I think you know I'm making sure I put a stretch on so every time there's a short activity let's say there's a five minute activity on the screen where they're doing some kind of procedural questions to check that they can do a skill then at the end, I'll always say, if you finish, here's a stretch question. So I am making sure I've got that challenge in so that those that finish quickly have then got something they can go off and do. Um, and they're like, to give you an example, there's this really nice thing that MathsPad published in the uh, beginning of January. And it's an activity where um, students are comparing fractions and percentages with inequalities. And it's like missing. It's like a puzzle. It's a really great activity. And I'm teaching that to year seven next week. We're doing frac- uh, fractions to percentages. So what I've done is in the practice lesson, the day after the lesson, I've set two Hegarty tasks and then I've set that. And I've said, print it if you can. If you can't print it, just write out the answer in your book. Um, and that's where I know that I would have put that in a lesson. And, it, and I was sad I couldn't put it in my lesson because it just wouldn't have worked. I just wouldn't have had time to do it really in my live lesson because it would have taken, it's a sort of good 10 minute task at least, or maybe 10, 15 minute task. But I have put it into my um, asynchronous lesson. So that's good. So that's something that there's no way I would have put that up in a, in a live lesson. But I do, at least I still have the opportunity to, to give them the chance to do it. I tell you the other thing though that I'm, 
that we can't it's, it's the hassling people to work that we can't really do that. and the thing is I know that's not an aspect of like maths teaching but um you know you sort of think in a normal lesson I, I might say I see a student who's slow to get started and we just can't see that now and you know when you sort of think once they get going then they'll do the practice they need and, and, and that's and but there'll be some students who are really poorly focused or don't do enough practice and we and we can't do anything about that and that's really frustrating you know that we can't kind of hassle them and nag them to work um or we can't go and stand over their shoulder and um and give them some sort of one-on-one help like that that is um that's really difficult at the moment i'm wondering whether a new teams update could be some kind of like electric shock or something (laughs) just a just a bosom, just a bosom back to life. I mean, it's all the, all the yeah. research shows it all depends on their home situation and whether they've got an adult there looking over them. And even if that adult's not helping them with their work, an adult who's making sure they stay focused and do the tasks. And we know from our own research that we have, um, I can't remember what it was, but we have something like oh, three quarters of our students have said yes when we've asked them, do they have an adult that checks that they complete all their live lessons every day? And so we have a quarter of students who basically don't have an adult checking that they're staying focused and doing their work. Um, and it's and the research shows that that is the game changer for the students. So, um, yeah, it's quite, you know, just to think that some of them are just kind of left alone to get on with it and won't focus and will maybe be on their phone during the lesson or something. Like that's, that's really sad to think that that's the situation. And it's so easy to pretend that you're in a lesson. You know, you can, you can log on, you're on the register for us. We check our registers by seeing when they joined. We can see they joined. They can maybe say hi in the Q&A. Um, but they could really be not listening for the whole lesson and and it will come up as a low score on the knowledge check at the end. And I won't know whether that's because they weren't listening or because they didn't understand. So yeah, really, really tough. That's interesting. That's interesting. Right, Joe. Well, that was absolutely fascinating deep dive into your, into your lesson there. Uh, just to kind of bring things to a close, um, I don't want to kind of retread over ground that you've covered in your blog post, but I just wonder um, about any kind of favorite resources that you found particularly useful for uh, for online teaching. Um, well, because my lessons have lots of uh, little kind of short exercises and I'm often snipping from, say, Corbett Maths or VariationTheory.com or um, various other places where you can get sort of some practice exercises. So I'm finding all of those. Sta- oh, CIMT is a great example for that. I'm often snipping exercises from CIMT. And it gives me these little short practice exercises. Um, I am making good use of um, Hecate, as I've said. And um, I'm using things like my, my sort of all the things that I normally use a lot of, like MathPad. I am, like I said, I'm using them as sort of um, uh, paper based tasks in my uh, in my non live lessons. Um, but basically, no, for me, my resources are my usual resources. And I'm very much trying as, as much as I can to keep things as familiar as possible for my students. Mm. So I haven't started using anything new. Um, I know lots of people, like I say, are using things like whiteboard.fi and things like that. But um, for me, the resources really are um, just my my usual um, things that I rely on and that I um, my students are familiar with. Fantastic. Um, how about any any tips, Joe? Well, what what have you learned? If you if you were speaking to somebody who's either struggling with online learning or perhaps they're they're in a position like like your school was, where they're now shifting away from um, just setting kind of videos and actually teachers are going to be trying to do some live lessons. Well, what are some of your top tips? Um, 
Right, so the exit tickets are, you know, the thing that I'm finding most powerful. Imagine if you taught in a school where they all the students had a device like an iPad or a Chromebook in the lesson. Then I then I would do this at the end of every lesson in school. You know, I'd get them to fill in an exit ticket online because just because it marks it automatically. So I think my 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 number one tip is um, to use quizzing, online quizzing, as a way of um, assessing your own teaching, but also being able to give whole class feedback. But my little tip for that is always preview the quiz and have a go at it yourself. Because what I'm finding is that a lot of teachers are finding that their quizzes are, uh, um, are going wrong. Like yesterday I made a quiz, and then I clicked on preview, I completed it myself to check it, and I got 8 out of 10. And I got 8 out of 10, not because I didn't have to do the maths, but because I had chosen, I just could set two of the wrong answers as correct or something. So I, I'd made a mistake in setting up the quiz. And I would never um, make a quiz live to my students before I've quickly previewed and checked all the answers myself. So that's, that's a big tip for making quizzes. It only takes a minute to preview and fill it in yourself and you'll see make sure your score is full marks otherwise something's gone wrong um and then yeah so my other tip is then whole class feedback on quiz questions so you know just literally picking out uh, one two or three questions where most of the class got it wrong making sure that the next lesson you address that for a start it shows them that you that you're looking at what they're doing students at home need to feel like someone is acknowledging that they're doing the work i find it frustrating that my 9 year old does every single task every day um, and I don't feel like the school kind of say, like, know that she's doing that. And I just sort of want them to know she's working really hard. So students like acknowledgement. They like to know that you're looking. And it even even if you haven't got time to mark their work individually and give them feedback, when you do the whole class feedback, then they're thinking, oh, look, Mrs. looked at the quiz we did last lesson. And that's really reassuring for them that you're actually looking at it and addressing the things they found difficult. Um, right, I have... Uh, three more tips. Nice. <laughs> um, nice. Another tip is to just, I mentioned this already, but just slow down all your explanations and reduce your content. So it's not just about speaking slowly, but it's about also just just trying to cover kind of, you know, one key skill in a lesson and not try and, and, and you know, it might it might be that in a normal lesson, I might, I might do kind of double the content. I really cut that content down, keep it really concise and, and slick and just sort of really minimise... Um, what you're trying to don't try and fit loads of stuff into a lesson because students are feeling stressed and overloaded and we all know what it's like online it's a very different experience um which brings me to my next tip which is um just think about everything from their point of view um think about accessibility just think about are you doing something where if a student does tries to watch it later it's just gonna it's just not gonna work for them like are you um are you thinking about um, you know, are you asking them to print stuff? Where, you know, at my my um my daughter's school, they give them a lot to print, but they say you don't have to print it; you can fill it in online. But it gives us a PDF. I can't fill in a PDF online. Like there's little things where think about from a student and parents' perspective, how it is going to be for them. Are we putting barriers in the way of them doing the work? So as long as we're sort of reducing all barriers and making sure that everything we do is accessible to anyone, whether they are sitting in a lovely study space with their own laptop. Or are they, you know, sitting in a in a bedroom with three other siblings on the end of the bed with a with a like a rubbish little phone or something? And we have to try and think: is everything accessible to everyone as much as we can possibly make it? Um, and then my final tip is just to ask for feedback, um, and that could be whole school level. You know, we have done a whole school survey for students, and it was absolutely enlightening, really, really interesting. Or it could be asking your own class for feedback and saying, right, I've just explained this. 
write in the Q&A now or in the chat if you want me to go through it again, if you think I went too fast or, or even another thing that someone else, this is a lovely tip, when you do your exit ticket quiz with say five or 10 questions at the end, then what you can do is after the last question, just put a free text box where you can say, would you like to tell me anything? And the students can then say, Miss, you're just going too fast in every lesson or, or, or any, whatever they want to say. Like every time I put a timer on, I always say, I don't know if I've given you enough time. And it, um, so you need to tell me if that was too quick. And so just constantly asking them and just sort of acknowledging that I don't really know what I'm doing here. So you need to tell me. And then your lessons get better and better every time by listening to your students. Um, and I just think if we, the, the more we can get feedback from them as we're learning, then very quickly our lessons will improve. I watched one of my lessons back and it was painful, but I did it. Um, and that, that was a, I recommend that to anyone. Like it's so hard to watch yourself teach, but I realized, um, you know, lots and lots of things where that's when I realized it was very early on that I was, I was talking too much when they were meant to be working. You know, I was interrupting them with time reminders. You've got one minute left. You've got 50 seconds left. Like, I don't need to do it. That's just interrupting them. So, yeah, I think watching myself back was, um, was a re- and it was so easy to do because obviously all of our lessons are automatically recorded because of the way we run them. So I just had to click on one of my own lessons and there I was. Fantastic. Any chance you can just summarise those top tips just with a headline? Have you got it written down? Yeah, so um, use um, exit tickets by quizzing online, but make sure you check it first. Um, give whole class feedback once you've done your quizzes. Um, slow down your pace and reduce your content in your lessons. Um, consider everything from a student's point of view and whether they can access things easily and ask your students for feedback. Fantastic. Superb. Now, these these final two questions for you, Joe, you've kind of covered, but I just wondered if there's anything else you want to add. No problem if not. And um, what challenges do you still face? Um, you mentioned this, the issue of trying to make sure students are, are, are doing the work and missing out on the one to one support and so on. And um, are they the biggies or anything else? Spring to I think every school faces um, engagement issues in terms of attendance like that is, you know, I think unless you are um, teaching very privileged young people, um, then if you work at a sort of state comprehensive where you have, say, uh, high people premium, then you're going to have a lot of challenges in terms of getting those students uh, to engage because obviously they have um, various reasons why they don't. And we currently have about um, 90% for our year sevens are coming to all live lessons and those who aren't are watching them later. And we've got a bit lower. We've got 84% for years eight and nine. Now, I, I don't know if they're high or low compared to other schools. They, they kind of... I find frustrations with my year nines because even though 84% of year nines going to live lessons sounds quite high, given that they have the option of watching them later as well. So that doesn't capture those who do that because I teach a lowish set. I am getting lower than that. So I'm finding that my year nine set three, and that's three out of four. Um, we have, I'm meant to have 26 there and I'm typically getting about 18 in attendance and that is a big challenge. Like that's worrying. And um, they're not. It's not that they don't like my live lessons because they've never turned up to experience them. You know, I've got some who haven't come to a single one. So it's not like I've done a rubbish live lesson and they've said, "Oh, we're not going to bother with that anymore." These are literally students who just haven't engaged at all. So that that is a challenge, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge for most schools to try and tackle. Um, and then I suppose the thing with that is you worry that they'll fall behind in maths, particularly the worry is, I mean, obviously I don't have GCSE classes at my school where it'd be even more worrying, but for year nine, where we know I'm teaching them this stuff that it's going to be in their, their GCSE in a couple of years and they're not learning it because they're not even in the lessons. But 
last time we did really good stuff to catch those students up we had that really good strategy I talked about it before where in our warm-up booklets we introduced we um, incorporated all the topics that we taught during lockdown and we basically retaught our lockdown topics through our warm-ups and we'll do that again in the summer term assuming we're back at school um, so we know we've got this really good strategy. So I shouldn't stress too much about these students who aren't coming because I know that we have got an, a really great way of trying to, as, as much as we can, catch them up. So, um, And the other challenge, I think, is workload, which is hard for everyone at the moment. I am very lucky. My school is really, really hot on the uh, staff and student well-being. Um, I don't know how people are teaching full timetables, you know, 20 live lessons a week back to back, especially, you know, if they have a difficult, if they don't have good Wi-Fi at home or if they have young children at home. I don't know. I don't know how, how people are doing that. And I think it's um, I'm surprised that schools are saying that they have to do that. I think um, my school is very concerned about staff welfare and no staff in my school are teaching more than six live lessons a week. You know, we're, you know, I'm doing 12 lessons in total, but six of them are asynchronous. So, you know, I think... Uh, Workload and staff well-being is a massive challenge, but um, I think uh, my school, I'm very lucky, my school are very, very mindful of it. Fantastic, fantastic. And again, uh, you kind of, you you gave a very good answer to this, but I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to add. Is there anything that you've learned from this experience that you'll bring back into the classrooms? I guess the exit tickets are your, well, the knowledge quizzes are your favourite thing, but maybe that's going to be tricky to to recreate. Is there anything else, Joe, that you'd like to Yeah, all, although saying that, now I'm thinking, I set homework, see, I set homework once a week at the, when I'm in school, and I normally set them some Hegarty work to do on a Monday, set them two tasks on Hegarty that they have to do by the following Monday. And now I'm thinking god it would be great if i could set my microsoft forms quiz after yes. my normal lessons but i don't know if that already work. we normally give a week to do a homework so actually that wouldn't really work and maybe i should start doing paper exit tickets a bit more but that's a hassle um but anyway yeah so that's something but the other thing is just about the pace and the scaffolding and the and the rushing and i do think that if this is really good to practice slowing down and, and trying to be concise and trying to reduce clutter in our lessons at the moment. And actually, I think that's something that will benefit our teaching. You know, I feel like the less the PowerPoints I'm making now, which I'm kind of adapting old PowerPoints, but changing them quite a lot. It's taken me quite a long time. I reckon I will then possibly use these same PowerPoints when I go back in the classroom because I'm spending a long time trying to declutter my teaching so I guess reducing overload. So I think that this will all actually possibly come back with me. Like, you know, me, I've put so much thought into how to teach a quite a complex topic, compound interest to a class of students who I know will struggle with it. Um, and I've spent a long time on thinking, how should I teach this online? And I reckon that that will benefit my teaching of it in the future when I go back to teaching it, like, you know, the whole um, slowing down, slowing down the pace, scaffolding and all that stuff that I've, I've thought about this week it's surely going to be a good thing when I get back in the classroom. Brilliant. Fantastic stuff, Joe. Well, last question for you. Um, we're recording this just towards the end of January 2021. God knows what's going to happen with the rest of the year. We're both missing kind of face-to-face -face conferences and CPD and all that kind of thing. We, I know you were involved in um, maths comp, the mini maths comp. It was on mine and Isaac's birthday, so I thought it wouldn't be a good oh, idea. Oh, happy birthday. I didn't realise. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but just like not knowing what the what this year is going to bring, have you got any plans, anything in the pipeline, anything you want listeners to 
to be aware of? Uh, no, is it sad? <laughs> there's nothing. There's, um, I mean, there's there's some great conferences coming up, like the MA conference at Easter, which will be online. That's going to be great. Now, obviously, it's nothing like the in-person conference. We had we had a great time, didn't we, at the last ATM MA conference? Um, and but these things are still happening, and they're surprisingly good online. Like the one I went to on Friday night, I was like, I was speaking at, at ten past nine, and I thought, <laughs> I'm not even going to still be awake. And I was really, I thought, this is going to be awful. I'm so tired. Everyone's so tired. But once you join, it's amazing. And you, like, you just straight away get that enthusiasm back and you get all these ideas. And you, it feels like you're hanging out with maths teachers, even though you're not. So I think people who feel like they're not going to like online conferences should probably give one a go. And even if not in term time, wait till the big Easter conferences come and, and try one of those because they're um, surprisingly engaging and wonderful and lovely. So, no, in terms of my plans for 2021, absolutely nothing, <laughs> nothing planned. But um, I will, of course, be um, attending and probably speaking at any conferences that come my way just because they – you know, as much as I in, in the run up to them, I get nervous, or if I'm speaking, or if I or I think it's going to be a drag. As soon as I'm as soon as I'm in it, I'm I re, I'm reminded of how good it is to just talk about maths teaching. So people really should, um, if they haven't done it before, they should have a go at that. Fantastic, great message, Joe. Well, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. God knows how many times you've been on there on, on Ian. Now. <laughs> you have a big you have a big listing, don't you? On the side, yeah, that's my book, yeah. But it's always, I always appreciate you giving up your time, especially especially on the weekend, and especially in such kind of stressful and busy times. So thank you so much for that, Joe. You take care of yourself, and no doubt we'll be speaking to you on the podcast again soon. Thank you, Craig. So... There you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Joe Morgan. As ever, it's always a load of fun. And more importantly, I just get so much every time I speak to her. And I hope you enjoyed it too. So just a few takeaways from me. The first off, first one is if you haven't already, please check out Joe's blog post on teaching online. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's absolutely fantastic. It just goes through depending on what school setup you've got. Joe has tips for Teams, uh, for Google Classroom, for just general tips, just loads of resources. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. So please check that out if you haven't already. Uh, second, I thought this was such an important point that Joe made about getting student feedback about what students actually think about online lessons and their kind of setups at home so things like do you have um, a parent checking over your work at the end of the day and I think Joe said 75% of her students said yeah but that's 25% who don't and that needs to be fact that needs to be factored in we know parental support in in that sense not being able to give the answers but being able to encourage students to keep working and so on and so forth is so important so it's worth knowing that but also that thing that Joe pulled out from her students about how the teachers were talking too fast trying to fit too much in and so on now this goes back to this uh, the, the notion of extraneous cognitive load now those of you who've listened to my interview with ollie lovell that came out before uh, this this episode will know all about this and in particular with regard to teaching online now whenever students are taught in, in classrooms there's extraneous cognitive load all over the show extraneous load from um whether it's the classroom environment whether it's the way powerpoints are designed worksheets are designed the teacher talking while students are trying to read and so on and cognitive load theories lots of uh, insights for me anyway about that 
But as Ollie explained to me, and as has become really clear with my conversation with Joe, teaching online, there's so, so much more potential for even more extraneous load. Just the fact that students are in completely new environments now, they're not used to learning maths in front of a screen all day, alongside all other lessons that they have to do. Perhaps they're um, sat in a noisy environment at home, perhaps there's lots of distractions going on. They're the things we really need to bear in mind, and we know that extraneous, extraneous load makes it so much harder for students to dedicate attention onto the, the things that are really going to make a difference to their learning. So that really needs bearing in mind. And that kind of feeds into what Joe said about whiteboards. Now, I think this is really interesting, this. Uh, jo loves a resource. Um, she's a resourceaholic, of course. So you'd think that whenever she sees this uh, this whiteboard tool uh, that's available, that you can, you can essentially replicate mini whiteboards um, online, that she'd be all over it. But her point, I thought, was fascinating. Her priority is to keep things simple for students and make it accessible for all. Um, and if we go to this concept of extraneous load, if students are having to click to another website uh, to access the whiteboard, having to navigate around that, trying to get their head around it, then they've got to figure out how to how to write on a phone or a tablet or using a mouse or something. It's all stuff that distracts away from the learning. So if Joe can find a way to make it work using the chat function and keeping everyone within Teams, then she's going to go for that. I thought that was fascinating. It's, it's not always about the fanciness of the resource. It's about whether it's appropriate for your students at that time. And maybe as students get more familiar, we can start to introduce this. But at the same time, I know of lots of people via Twitter and colleagues I've spoke to who've really made these whiteboards uh, work well for them um, on the online teaching. So it's just worth considering. And I think that this notion of extraneous load is a really useful thing when, when weighing things up. That's what I like about cognitive load theory. It gives me a model to work with. Um, just before we, we wrap up, just a couple more things. I just wanted to reflect here. Joe was kind enough to mention diagnosticquestions.com. Uh, it's annoying she nicks the questions from there, but I'll, I'll let her off because she often gives it plugs. Um, I just wanted to reflect on four ways that people have been using diagnostic questions uh, throughout uh, remote teaching, just in case uh, any of you are interested and want to use it. So a very common way is to just take a question from the site um, and just embed, you just kind of copy the question as an image and paste it into either a PowerPoint or whatever, whatever kind of presentation software you're using and get students to vote on the answer a b c d just as you would in the classroom but uh, you can go like kind of one step further in terms of the vote you can just set up a poll whether it's in teams or uh, uh, or zoom or classroom or whatever it is you're using um, and lots of teachers are setting up blank polls uh, in advance because all you need is just a b c d you don't need to write in the options or anything like that because you can see them on the screen in front of them and then anytime you bang up a diagnostic question you can fire up one of these polls the students can vote and then what i think super smart is teachers are asking students to type in the reason for their vote into the chat function. And that means that the teacher can then dip in and see, oh, Jess thinks this, and perhaps um, ask Jess to unmute herself and verbalize that, or just the teacher can just use Jess's explanation um, and kind of model it themselves and so on and so forth. So you, you can replicate all the benefits of, of using diagnostic questions in the classroom, students voting, sharing explanations, and so on. You can do that quite nicely using polls and chat functions on many of the online platforms. So I thought that was nice. Uh, you can also use mini whiteboards. I know lots of people use diagnostic questions with mini whiteboards. Students. Uh, writing A, B, C, D, but also showing they're working out and then holding them up. Of course, you can use the interactive whiteboards uh, for this that Joe and I have been speaking about. So um, again, if your students are up for that, that could be a really nice way of making that work. And I know on Twitter, lots of people um, are using them that way as well.
Uh, your third way is what Joe described, which is quizzes. Now, of course, you can build a quiz in diagnosticquestions.com. You can send students the link. It'll mark it for them. You'll get all the insight and so on and so forth. But I understand the point that uh, if that requires an extra login, if it's taking students to a different website, uh, they're having to flick between windows and so on, it can be it can be overwhelming for students. So teachers have uh, found other ways around this. Joe mentioned uh, putting it into a Microsoft Forms uh, kind of quiz format. That works well. There's also quizzes, Q-U-I-Z-Z-I-Z. -Z -Z. I think I've spelt that right. Lots of teachers uh, use diagnostic questions in that as well. I'd obviously prefer that people answer on the system so we get all the data and we can learn about students' misconceptions and misunderstandings globally. But I also understand that teachers are just <laughs> under so much pressure at the moment. So whatever works for you with the questions, just go ahead and do it. Um, and the final thing that I started up on Twitter uh, last week or so at the time of recording is DQ a day. And this is my just idea of just providing a resource that hopefully teachers find useful. It's uh, each day, each weekday, I select a question from the website that's been quite poorly answered. Uh, normally, probably less than 60% of students have got it right. And what I do is I share the question and then I also choose two real life student explanations from the website, all anonymized, who went for two different answers. So let's say B is the right answer. I choose a student who went for A and a student who went for C. I get their explanations and then I put it all together on a slide. And the challenge is that for your students, first, can they get the question right? Then can they explain where each of the students who are on the slide, where, where, where their explanation is going wrong, where, where's the fault in their thinking. And then finally, the hardest challenge of all is how would they convince those students that their answers are wrong? So it's, it's the idea is to really kind of get beyond the question and think a little bit deeper about it. Can you get it right, but can you understand how others would go wrong and then how, how would you help them with it? So I share one of those uh, every day. And if you go on Twitter and you use the hashtag DQAday, just click on that, you'll find uh, all of those, the back catalog. And I'll keep, I'll keep doing those as long as people f uh, find them useful. Uh, there'll be a link to those in the show notes. And last but not least, I really like Joe's use of exit tickets. I've also struggled to make exit tickets work, you know, in the classroom it's a flipping hassle you've got to cut up all the questions you've got to hand them out put them on the student's desk they hand them to you as you go out as they go out you're then flicking through them I know, I know it reduces the workload you don't have to mark them but it's still a bit of a pain so in the classroom I just use diagnostic questions I just bang a question up the last few minutes students vote and that's my picture that's my picture of, of understanding that I get just looking at what they voted for uh, just with their hands or ABCD cards or whatever but I really like Joe's idea now of using a forms quiz at the end of every lesson of course, it does all the marking for you and you get a real clear snapshot of, of students understanding there. And that is a real good example of how this current situation is perhaps better than what we could do in terms of the classroom because we can, we can use these exit tickets uh, it, it, because essentially students have, have got, got devices which they wouldn't have in the classroom. Uh, just on that as well, uh, just thinking back to my conversation with Ollie Lovell uh, in the last episode, the other thing we were talking about that's perhaps better um, uh, about this, this online learning than is in the classroom is the very nature that, that students have uh, devices in front of them by default means we can do things like Desmos Classroom and GeoGebra and Graphable students can kind of play around with all that kind of stuff uh, in ways that they simply wouldn't be able to do if they didn't have a device with them in the classroom so it's not ideal by any stretch of the imaginations but there certainly are benefits uh, some benefits some positives that we can draw from this situation anyway 
Anyway, I've rambled on far too much. So all that remains for me to do is once again thank Joe for being a wonderful guest, to thank our lovely sponsors uh, for, for supporting this episode, uh, School's Exams, so please check those out, to uh, thank podcastteams.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show, and of course, a big thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. Um, I'll be back shortly with some more fascinating guests, but for now, you take care of yourselves, and bye for now. Bye for now.